Good morning, First Church. Uh, why don't you guys stand up? Good morning to everybody who's joining us from home today. Um, we are excited to just be here and to worship together um, and just to get into the Word today and just to spend some time with the Lord and together as a body. Let's pray before we get into worship. <clears throat> Lord, you are worthy of our praise, God. You are um, the true, the one true God, Lord, who reigns over this earth, Lord, and we acknowledge that this morning. We just thank you for your love, Lord, for us, for your mercy and your grace, God, um, that even though we have done nothing to deserve it, you give it to us anyways, Lord. We just ask that during this time, Lord, you would allow us to just focus on you, to set everything else to the side, and just focus on worshiping you in spirit and in truth, Lord, with our hearts and our minds, Lord. And we just ask that you bless our time, and above all, that you would be glorified. Amen. Joy now, our God is full. 
we thank you and praise you. We thank you, Jesus, that you introduced this um, this theme of, of prayer, this template for how we pray. And we thank you that that addressing you, God, as Father is how we start. That, God, because of Jesus, that we can boldly approach God and with confidence um, draw near to who you are. And so we praise you and we thank you that it is that it is how we start our prayers, that it is how we start our petitions before you, that you are first our Father, that we've been granted sonship in you, um, and that you intercede for us. And so may we be reminded of that familial language, that you are a good Father. And God, we do pray and ask that you would bring heaven down. Would you bring heaven and make it here on earth as it is? God, may we hallow your name. May we um, make your name known in all things that we do. God, in a, in a state in our world where um, we're seeing the, the brokenness more and more, brokenness that has always been there, but whether in our society and things going around around us um, or even within our own hearts, we are in this season of realizing how how badly we need you, how bad the state of our hearts are. But God, we thank you for the gift of Jesus and the gift of the gospel that you do grant us um, to be children of you, to experience freedom in you and healing in you. And God, may we live that out. We believe that you have made us your hands and feet, that um, the world is not perfect, but you have called us to be to be in it and to be in a place that that is in our home to um, to hallow your name to make it known among the nations to make it known among the broken and and love others as you would and so would we do that would we take up that call would we not um, would we not drop it um, and would we pass it on to others in strength and in the grace that you've called us to and that you enable us with. So, Lord, as we pray and as we sing and worship um, the remainder of these songs, would we focus our eyes on you as our one thing? Would you be the only thing, the one thing that we um, find joy in, that we find completion in? Would no other thing, no other person, no other opportunity um, come in the way of that because it can't fill that that spot and so um, we do hallow your name we we express the fact that we love to be in your presence Um, we thank you that many of us are able to be here together and some um, at a distance Um, but we are united in you and um, may you receive glory and honor um, in the rest of our worship today jesus name amen Ah. Uh-huh. 
God, we just thank you for this time that we've had to worship you, Lord. We ask that as we um, get ready to get into the word, that our hearts would just remain open to um, receive what you have for us today. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time. Amen. So we're going to take a short break right now. Um, you guys can sit down. Um, we will be resetting the stage, and then we'll get right back to it. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, it's good to have you back. We are going to continue our series that we started way back when in Hosea and was interrupted. And so we're going to be talking about um, Hosea chapter 3 now. That's where we're at. I'm going to do, I want to do a short review, but we're going to start with this, uh, just, just reminding ourselves of where we're at. And uh, First of all, this was overarching from the very beginning with the book of Hosea. This is not some kind of a universal stereotype for women as we deal with Hosea and Gomer, uh, or men for that matter. Gomer represents the men and women of Israel. Gomer represents us. And uh, also, I, one other caveat I wanted to say in this is that sometimes in a, with, with this book, it can make people feel very uncomfortable who have been through difficult uh, situations in marriage, have been divorced or whatever. And, and in this book we're seeing, and I mentioned this in the title, God is the ultimate lover. In human relationships, we have two imp imperfect people and... Um, People don't respond, and people don't act right, and people don't do what they're supposed to do. So this is not to make certain people feel guilty or that they didn't do enough or anything like that. This is to focus on one important point, and that is God, the ultimate lover, all right? And uh, just a historical note, this is taking, time to, uh, take, taking place during a time of prosperity with Israel. It's a time of peace. And at this time, uh, Assyria is growing in, in the distance on the horizon, and Assyria is starting to look south and look over towards Israel uh, because Israel is kind of the breadbasket of, of the Middle East right there. But the, the Israelites don't realize this. They've got their, the, their own stuff they're dealing with, and it's a, prosper, it's a prosperous time. They feel very comfortable. It's kind of uh, like we see sometimes, you know, I bought a new mansion, hashtag blessed. You know, we get that sometimes with people that talk about how blessed they are. Well, Israel would be doing that right now. They would be putting a lot of their, uh, a lot of their tweets out there with hashtag blessed because they felt like things were going so well. But what was happening is they were uh, pursuing other gods, other loves, and they were doing some terrible things. They were ignoring the poor. They were cheating God. They were unjust. Uh, in their hearts and their actions, they had abandoned God, just like Gomer did to Hosea in, in chapters 1 and 2. And uh, in that story of Hosea and Gomer, they had kids, and those kids, their names mean something. And then at the end of chapter 2, God redeems their names and turns them into something uh, good and wonderful. And we talked a little bit about how God pursues his people. And, and uh, one of the ways, three things, one of the ways he pursues his people is by frustrating their paths. When they're going astray, he frustrates their paths. 
Uh, another way that he pursues his people is that through discipline. Sometimes he brings discipline into their lives. And the interesting thing is, as we were looking at that in that passage in, in Hosea chapter 2, he, he frustrates their past, and then he disciplines them. And then you think, okay, they still aren't turning. Now is going to come the crescendo. Now is going to come, you know, Lowell the hammer Stanley is going to hammer them and, and, and really punish them for the way they are. And the next thing he says, he says, I will allure them. I will woo them. I will love them. He disciplines, he frustrates their paths, and he says, but my big one is, I'm going to love them. I'm going to love them. Um, He said in uh, verse 14 of chapter 2, therefore now I am going to allure her. Talking about Israel. I will lead her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. He says, I will take her off alone and I will speak tenderly to her. And this shows the heart of God in this heartbreaking love story. And we've all experienced heartbreaking love stories, I think, in one way or another, either in our own lives, our lives of friends. We know what it's like to have our heart broken. We know what it's like to have um, our life shattered, our heart shattered and in pieces. And, and when we see God it, through the example of Hosea here, we see that God loves the heartbreaker. And this is a great passage about God's love for us. And so we're going to be talking about that today as we continue in this. But to love is to be vulnerable. To love is to allow pain into your life. You can wall off, try to wall off that pain, and by doing that you've walled off the ability to love. C.S. Lewis has a great passage on this in his book on four loves about you, you encase yourself and you keep yourself uh, safe from heartbreak, and you will never love. And interestingly, there's a very a famous, almost kind of an example of how that works. Um, Ayn Rand, who is a uh, pretty famous um, writer, philosopher, and in a famous interview uh, with Mike Wallace, she talked about how she had walled herself off from love so that she wouldn't have to risk being hurt, and that she turned relationships with people into transactional relationships. And if the transaction didn't work, you just cut the relationship and move on. And, and she said, and basically marriage is a transactional relationship. And so if one person isn't doing their part, just cut it and move on, just like that. And it was very, very brutal. And he was stunned by this. He was saying, you know, how can you do this? And, and what's interesting is then uh, not five or ten years later, she fell deeply in love with a man that she worked with in her, uh, in her business. And, and a few years later, he said, I'm cutting it because I believe you're right. This is just a transactional relationship, and I don't want to spend time with you anymore. I found someone else. And she became very vindictive and bitter, bitter and very pain. And she, she um, vindictively did things to this man for years afterwards to try to punish him. She realized, I think, without maybe she didn't fully realize it, but it was plain, that you can't, you can't protect yourself from pain. It's going to happen. And love opens us up to that. It opens us up to great joy, but it opens us up to, to significant pain. And so this is a part, this is something we, we know, we're familiar with. We see it all the time. We've experienced it at times in our own lives. And uh, it, it is something that we can't just get away from. We have to deal with it. And we see how God deals with it. How does God respond to it. And one of the things I was doing uh, as I was studying, I looked something up. You know, you can look up uh, all kinds of things now with the internet, but I, I was looking at a thing that talked about why do people, why do, why do sometimes marriages fall apart, or why do people cheat on each other? And I want to give you, there were, there's a million different reasons, but this was one that had seven, seven major reasons. 
Why do people cheat or why do marriages fail? He said, number one, they said their expectations are too high for marriage. They're basically coming into it with rose-colored glasses and no marriage is perfect. And they have this perfect image. So when it doesn't match up, they tend to quit. Um, another one that people give is, uh, is, they call it the lack of sizzle. The emotion, it's, it's, my emotions aren't in this anymore. It doesn't, it doesn't make me feel good anymore. Another one is, uh, some people are just liars. Some people take vows and don't mean it, and um, they're not really committed. The fourth one is uh, some people have addictions that they have to deal with, whether it's addictions to, to alcohol, drugs, pornography, whatever it is, and they just can't stop, and the marriage fails because of it. Another one is, is that um, oftentimes people don't have any friends. Their spouse is their only friend, and so when the tough times come, they've lost their last friend, and they, they say they want to move on. Another one is just out of revenge or anger for what they feel like has been done to them. And a final one, number seven, is they get depressed, they get lonely. There's no real intimacy in the marriage. They say, that, that's seven reasons. You know, and I was looking at that, and I started thinking, what are seven reasons that people, people commit spiritual adultery to God? And they kind of line up. You know, the first one was high expectations. Well, that can happen. If you think that having a relationship with God means that everything's going to go well for you, if you think that He's going to make you happy, healthy, and wealthy, um, like no problems, then that's, that's not what happens. That's not true, and your expectations are way out of line. Um, the second one was that lack of sizzle or emotions, and I, I think sometimes people, they come to know Jesus Christ, and it's an incredibly emotional event, and then years down the road, okay, the emotions aren't quite the same, because that's what happens at times with relationships and how, how relationships grow, and so they, and so they wander. Uh, some people, like the, on the other ones, some people are not truly committed the fourth one was addiction to something, and I think um, that can happen to us as followers of Christ. We can have an addiction to an earthly pleasure. We can have things that we want so badly we're willing to sacrifice, even, even do something that we know is wrong to get it, or to manipulate people to get it, and manipulate, hope, try to manipulate God in the same way. Um, the fourth one is not many friends, just your spouse was your friend. A fifth one, and, and, and I think... What can happen is Christians, we need Christian friends. We need non-Christian friends. We need them both. And non-Christian friends are a part of our outreach, plus they can be wonderful friendships. But we need Christian friends also who build us up in the faith, who challenge us, who exhort us, who are willing to call us, call us out if we're doing something we shouldn't do. The sixth one was revenge or anger. And I think that can happen. Sometimes people blame God. I've talked to a number of different people at times who have said, you know what, I prayed and prayed and prayed and God didn't do it. And so I just don't believe him anymore. I just walked away. And they, and they blame God. And so sometimes with that, those type of people I say, wow, did your parents live? Did, did they just give you everything you ever wanted? And No, parents didn't give me everything I ever wanted. I said, well, that's what happens with God too. He knows what's best. We have to trust him on this sometimes. But they can blame God or just stop caring. And then also... Just like in the other one, depression, getting lonely, where is God? That can be a devastating thing and can cause people to wander. And so we have this passage where we have a man and a woman. They get married and they have kids and she wanders. And it can work both ways. Again, it's not a template. It doesn't tell us anything. And I just want to read to you uh, Hosea chapter 3. It'll Not on the screen. Um, it's only five verses. The Lord said to me, God said to Hosea, 
Go, show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. So the first thing I want you to see here in this passage is that God, the ultimate lover, he sees the desperate condition of the one he loves. And this is in verses 1 and 2. He says, the Lord said to me, go, show your, wife, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods, and they love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. So God connects this to the nation of Israel, his people. They were wedded to him and he to them, but they were unfaithful. And so they betrayed him, and he became understandably angry. When you love someone... At times, you can get angry about things. It's a sign of loving them deeply. He told them, when they were married, you'll have no other gods before me. And so what, what's happening here? God wants us to feel, this whole story, God wants us to feel his heartbreak. He wants us to understand his heart in this. He wants us to see our heart, that we're prone to wander, that we can easily become distracted by things that are not that important. We can walk a path that leads away from God rather than to him. And they had turned to other gods. It says they turned to other gods and they loved the sacred raisin cakes. Now, i got to tell you, just because this is me and I understand this, the first thing that came to my mind was Little Debbie sacred raisin cakes, right, with a little cream filling. And And I was just thinking, I should just get right off of that picture right now. And I was just thinking, you know, what what in the world? Uh, They betrayed God for Little Debbie? You know, little Debbie raisin cakes? But these raisin cakes were the food that was used in worship, in the worship of Baal, in the worship of Ashtaroth, and a number of other ones. They had special little delicacies that they would make and eat as a part of the worship. And that's what he's identifying there. They, these are these small, you know, it's interesting. These are very small things, but they're in, in a sense a very big thing. And man, we, I can struggle with that so much. I can start off with something that really is very small. But if it, if it leads me in a wrong way, it can become something that can be very huge. And so we have to ask ourselves, I have to ask myself, what do I pursue? What tempts me? What am I willing to cut corners for? Is there something that the loss of that thing will break my heart more than sin breaks my heart? And Israel was not asking themselves this question. They weren't asking themselves these things. Disaster is looming in the distance, and they don't quite see it yet, and they just cling to their idols. And then what happens, man? Assyria comes and just ravages that nation, and they be, leaves them morally, spiritually, and economically bankrupt. They become slaves. And the desperate condition of Gomer points to the desperate condition of Israel. Gomer chased freedom and pleasure. And now we look at this, and she has to be bought. She has been enslaved. 
Much like today, in a sense, when women are enslaved to a pimp. She's been enslaved. She's been disgraced. She's an adulteress. She's powerless. She's ashamed. And true love always sees the condition for what it is. It does not minimize. It does not inflate, but it does not minimize. But what we see in this passage is true love acts. It acts. So what will the perfect lover do? What would you do? You know, I think about this. What would I do? Go watch and mock? Rub it in? Get self-righteous? Be saying, I've been watching the kids all this time. Well, you did. You deserve to be sold. And so we see God, the ultimate lover. He sees the desperate condition of the one he loves. And then point two, the ultimate lover takes redemptive measures. So God's, the Lord said to me, I want to just read that again because there's one or two things I want to highlight. Go show your love. Go show your love to your wife again. He doesn't, he doesn't say just go do this. Go. He says go and show love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Lover is the Lord, loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and they love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. So now we have, we have Hosea. He's talking about what he did. He's, God says, go and show, and this is what he does to go and to show. And this shows us the love of God for us. He's showing it to us. He's demonstrating it to us. He says, I love you. You will wander, and I will woo you back. I will run after you. What an amazing God. He's saying, when you, when you go off, I will go after you. When you ignore me, I will grab your attention again. Because he says, go show your love to your wife again. And God is saying, when you forget me, I will remind you of me again. When you misunderstand me, I will teach you about me again. When you fall down, I will pick you up again. When you make a mess, I'll clean you up again. When you throw a tantrum, I will calm you down and comfort you again. When you run away, I will find you again. And when you cheat, I will forgive you again and again and again and again. This is God's love. This is how true love works. It's an eternal love. It's a love that we cannot fully understand. We cannot fully grasp. You cannot quantify this type of love. It's beyond us because he's God. He's holy. He's other. And he has a love that is like that to us. That's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8. He says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul gets a glimpse of this love that we see we're getting a glimpse of in the book of Hosea. And he says, this is mind-blowing. This love is unbelievable. It keeps saying again and again and again. And so God says to him, go show your love to her again. That's the love God has. That's what he's teaching us here. The question then becomes, do we believe it? Because this is the love that leaves the 99 to find the one. 
Go love her again. And God doesn't pretend. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He puts it right in there. She's loved by another. He says, go love her again because she's an adulteress. He's saying, Hosea, I want you to love her like I love you. And he mentions she's loved by another. She's, he reminds Hosea of the wounds. He's not sugarcoating it. And so what does Hosea do? He says, I bought her. I bought her. It's an action that he took. He does not wait for her to get her act together. God is teaching us something about himself in this. In the book of Romans, it says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God did not wait for us to get our act together. So Hosea is obeying God and he's imitating God. It reminds me, a while back we talked about forgiveness and how difficult forgiveness can be when we really think about it biblically. When something is huge and hurtful in our lives, why is it so hard to forgive? And the reason it's so hard to forgive is that there is a debt that has to be paid. And if I forgive someone, I'm releasing them of the debt and saying, I will pay the debt myself. That's why forgiveness is hard. That's why sometimes when someone has hurt you deeply and you say, I forgive you, or you say, God, I want to forgive this person, and then you get frustrated because 10 minutes later, 20 minutes later, an hour later, you think of them and you're like, and you're so angry, and you go, oh, I was supposed to have forgiven them. God, help me to forgive. And then it comes back again. Why? Why does that work that way? Here's why. Because it's a huge debt. You don't just snap it away. That's something our culture wants people to believe. Forgive and forget. Have you ever noticed in real things that never works? It's really hard because you can't forget the pain. And so you take the debt. You say, I'll, I'll take the pain. I'll take the debt. I'll put it on my shoulders and I'll pay it. I forgive you. I release you of it. Now, when someone has really hurt you, it doesn't mean you just go right back and let yourself get hurt again. We have to be wise. Sometimes boundaries have to be erected for the sake of both people. But when we say we're going to forgive, what happened? He said, I bought her. What is he saying? I paid the debt. When Hosea married Gomer, there's no doubt, because it's the culture they live in, he paid a bride price. And now he's paying it again. He's paying it again. I mean, imagine, imagine the scene. It's like an auction and people get put up and people buy them. It reminds us of, of a horrible part of our past as a country. And so she's put up, she stood up there. Imagine what she thought. First, there's my husband. I know why he's here. He's going to make fun of me. He's loving this. He, I'm getting my comeuppance, and he is loving this. And then he, he makes the, he buys her. And then, if I mean, I just can imagine her thinking, oh, no. He is going to get his revenge. He owns me now. I am going to, my life is going to be hell. You know, why is he buying me? 
Verse 3. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way towards you. Now, what is going on here? And this is very hard to translate um, um, in, in the Hebrew, but it seems to be saying, it seems to be saying that neither one of them will have intimacy for a period of time. She's not to have intimacy with any man, and he says, I'll be the same way to you. Now, why? And I think we can understand probably why. Uh, this is at least my way of thinking. This is a woman who's learned to use sex as a tool, as a weapon for a long time. She's gotten things through sex. She's gotten affection. She's gotten money. She's gotten whatever through sex. And so now I, I, he has to deal with that because she's going to think, well, he's going to treat me harshly. Maybe I can blunt some of that. And so, you know, I'll just use sex as a tool like I always have. And she'll say, oh, Hosea, you know, you're so handsome. You haven't aged at all. I love your bald head. And, and it just, well, I mean, if he's handsome, it has to be, right? That's just, the, that's biblical teaching right there. Um, and so she's thinking, she's thinking, if I can get him in bed, this won't go so bad for me. This is how it's always worked for her. And now, Hosea, having paid a second bride price, knows he knows shortcutting this would be disastrous. It would only, like if he, this is a lot of it, if he had sex with her, it would only reinforce everything she's done before. How to break the cycle. And so Hosea is saying to her, this is like we're starting over. This is like a reboot. This is going to be like detox. She needs to learn or relearn, maybe, loving affection apart from sex. And he says, I will hold myself to the same standard. I'm not asking you to do anything that I wouldn't do. And remember, this points, this points to God in Israel. This points to God in his relationship with us. Because Israel, this detox that Gomer is going to go through with, with, with Hosea is exactly what Israel is about to go through in their life. In verse 4, it says, For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or household god. They're going to be taken into captivity when Assyria comes sweeping down. God doesn't allow them to be totally destroyed. But they do lose. They lose everything. It's a very similar to the detox. They will lose their freedom. They will lose their government. They will lose the temple. The very sign of intimacy with God is going to be wiped away. And they will lose the other idols they had too. God says, I'm taking it all away. I'm going to take it all away. Because they jumbled it all together. And they saw no problem with combining the worship of Yahweh with the worship of Baal. So they had lost sight of their, just like Gomer, they had lost sight of their true intimate relationship with God. Just like her. Just like we can do sometimes. We lose sight. And we get ourselves into things, into situations, into thoughts, into actions that don't reflect God in our lives because we've lost sight of what it is to be truly intimate with Him. Now, I want to say something 
because people can take this wrong. Uh, there's, God is going to discipline the children of Israel, and Hosea, in a sense, is instituting a discipline, but it's for both of them. And discipline is a part of love. Abuse is not a part of love. And just like with children, it takes time and effort to discipline your child. To do it the right way is hard. To do it the wrong way is incredibly easy. To do nothing about it is easy. To do the right thing is hard. So that's an important point. Discipline is a part of love. Abuse is not. Another important point. Whatever you worship in your life, you will model it. Jose is modeling his actions after God. How he's treating Gomer is modeled after and reflecting how God treats his people. And so we have to stop and think sometimes. When people hurt us, how will I act? Who am I going to model in this relationship? Will I absorb the debt? Or will I try to make someone pay? It's like, you know, when someone hurts you maybe, and then they text you and they say, I'm really sorry, uh, please, you know, please forgive me, and you text K, right? What does K mean? K means you haven't done enough yet. I recognize you're talking to me, but I want something more. I want more from you. And we punish in so many ways, whether it's snide comments, whether it's getting, telling other people so they get in our side of the situation, whether it's a subtle withdrawal, which can happen so many times in a marriage where people just subtly pull apart and things get quiet and you know something's wrong, but you can't quite put your finger on it. We have to be concerned with restoration, not restitution. And again, I mentioned this before, we do sometimes need to create boundaries, but we create boundaries not to punish, we create boundaries to help two people grow and flourish. So sometimes boundaries are needed, there's nothing wrong with that. And so we see now, we see Hosea, he restores her, he in a sense saves her, he's modeling God. And there are the parallels there. Hosea marries an unfaithful woman who becomes unfaithful, so does God. Hosea pursues her to win her again, and so does God. Hosea pays a price to redeem her, and so does God. Now, at the time of the writing of Hosea, God has not paid the price yet, but he's letting them know it's coming. And he's, it's, it's going to be reflected even in, in the next verse. So we see, number one, God, the ultimate lover, sees the desperate condition of the one he loves. Two, the ultimate lover takes redemptive measures. Three, the ultimate lover seeks a loving return. That's in verse 5. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. So what is he doing? He's looking for, he sees, he sees when um, is, Assyria is coming. And he says they're going to lose their freedom. They're going, to lose, they're going to lose their worship. They're going to lose all of that stuff is going to be taken away as they see it. They can, still, you know, they can still worship God in a foreign land, but they lose the temple. They lose those things that they held on to and they thought were so important. And then he says, but they're going to return. And this is looking towards the future now as at the writing of Hosea. But to me, the very interesting phrase here is... Um, Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek. Now, they're going to seek the Lord their God and David their king. Now, here's why that's an interesting phrase. David's dead. David died a long time ago. So what is God telling them? What is God telling them here? 
their ultimate king, they, they knew the Messiah is coming out of the line of David. He would be, in a sense, to them like the next David. They knew that. They knew their ultimate king was coming, and they were looking for him. But here's the deal. They're going to seek, he says, they're going to seek God, and, and, and that get, gets tied in with worship, and they're going to seek David the king. And there was two questions that rabbis a long time ago really struggled with, with that very verse. Because the first thing they said is, this implies worship. And worshiping God, of course, but worshiping a king? That would be idolatry. And the second thing that they, they struggled with this thing is, well, how are sins going to be dealt with? We have no temple. The temple was destroyed. We have no sacrificial system going on. How are sins going to be dealt with. See, they struggled with the two things that are the very essence of what God is doing. Because both questions are answered in Luke chapter 1. The angel speaking to Mary, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. See, in Hosea chapter 3, verse 5, we are getting, as we see throughout the Old Testament, these little lights that shine and say, he's coming. Jesus is coming, and he's going to take care of our sins once and for all. And, and even the rabbis sensed it, but they couldn't figure it out because they kept thinking, this implies worship. You can't worship a king. And how are sins going to be dealt with? And that's exactly what it's pointing towards. And so we have this passage in, in, in Hosea, in chapter 3, which shows us the beauty, the love of God for us, that he is a God who pursues. He's a God who sees things for the way they are. He doesn't sugarcoat, he doesn't, and he deals with things, he deals with us where we are. He doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He died for us anyways. God demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so now, as we see all of that, what, what do we do? And one, one thing, I mean, there's a lot of places we could go with this, but one thing I was thinking about is the typical questions that are often asked by a marriage counselor in, in, a, in a counseling situation that we could ask about ourselves and God. Four, four basic areas that are often pursued. First area is, how's your communication? Is your communication honest? Is your communication open? Is your communication regular? Is it challenging, but is it and yet encouraging? And for us, how's your communication with God? Is it honest? Is it open? Is it regular? The second one is, how's your conflict resolution? If you're struggling with conflict, how are you resolving it? Because oftentimes, anger and, and, and struggles in a marriage get overwhelming. Well, it can happen to us too. We can get angry at God. We can be disappointed with God. We can begin to doubt God. And what do we do? Well, oftentimes, the conflict resolution, what, what happens is you bring someone in who's very skilled at it, and you, and you learn from them. And I would say in our personal lives, as we deal sometimes with anger or disappointment and doubt, first of all, talking with God, being open and honest. Second of all, bringing someone in, someone you trust, someone you know will speak truth to the situation, who will sit with you and work through the difficulties. 
as you struggle, especially with areas like doubt or, or disagreement with Scripture and not, not agreeing with something that's written in the Word of God. Third thing they talk about, too, is uh, how's, how are the responsibilities that you share working out? Because oftentimes a lot of friction can come out of those type of things, and we can apply that to ourselves and God. God has responsibilities and promises He makes to us. And then he has things, he says, now I, I'm telling you, th- I want you to do this. And it's not so much God says, I want you to do this because I'm doing so much. God says, I want you to do this because it's the best thing for you. This will be the best thing for you as a human being. This is what you're made for. I want you to go in this direction. I want you to do these things. I want you to be involved in this type of thing. Why? Because it's best for you. Because I love you. Fourth, so first, how's your communication How is conflict resolution? How are the responsibilities that you share? Fourth, how is your time together? Do you spend time enjoying each other? Are there things you both love to do? Do it. And the question is, do you spend time enjoying God? Not necessarily just religious stuff, but just time enjoying God. And how can you do that? Figuring out, how can I do that? How can I spend time enjoying God? Um, I know for my wife and I, during this time with coronavirus, we've been trying to figure like one thing we love to do together is, is, is uh, we ride our bikes together. And, um, and we'll just, just go riding because as we ride, we talk and, and we talk about stuff and, and, uh, and, and just communicate, open and honest communication. And we love to go places that are beautiful to ride. Um, not too long ago, we, we went to uh, Fort Monroe, and we just rode around and rode up along the beach and uh, on the big path there, and it was beautiful. It was beautiful. And I remember we stopped, and we were looking out, and it was, a, it was such a nice day, and I was like, God, this is beautiful. You didn't have to make it beautiful, but you did make it beautiful, and I thank you for that. Just to enjoy God. I think about that sometimes um, sitting down to eat a meal and just saying, God, thank you for food that tastes good. Because you didn't have to do that. You could have just told us this gray gruel is what your body needs now. Eat it, you know. But we have all this delicious food, even little Debbie cakes. Although that's iffy. (laughs) That's really iffy. It's right up there with Twinkies, you know. Um, but finding ways to enjoy God with other people or by yourself, to pause, to reflect, to learn to be thankful, so that with these four things that oftentimes marriage counselors talk to people in, 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 in marriages about, they, they apply to us too as followers of Jesus Christ. How's your communication? How's your conflict resolution? How's it going with the responsibilities that you share? And how is your time together? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is true. God, that as the ultimate lover, you don't sugarcoat. You you paint the picture of our condition honestly and brutally, but fairly. And Lord, we see your love for us that is supernatural and amazing and unbelievable at times. And yet it's true, and we thank you that we can rest in that incredible love and grow closer to you. 
Thanks for being able to spend this time together, Lord, worshiping you through your singing and through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, God bless you, and we are dismissed.